Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a special message from Matthew chapter 6 on this Father's Day, a familiar prayer, the Our Father. Now, I've called this message, Talk to Your Father, because that's what my mom used to say to me whenever I'd ask her for something that she was uncertain I should have. Well, talk to your Father, she would say. And that's what Jesus is telling His disciples to do. They have a Father in heaven that they can talk to. This prayer is the most famous of all prayers. Even unbelievers know this prayer. Children are taught this at a very young age. They don't always get it right, however. Uh, One three-year-old prayed, Our Father who does art in heaven... Harold is his name. (laughs) One parent had been teaching this to her daughter, Caitlin, every night. And finally, Caitlin launched out on her own, and she prayed, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from email. Amen. (laughs) And I would say, Amen to that. One little boy prayed, Forgive us our trash baskets as we forgive those who put trash in our baskets. And actually, I think he's got the idea there. One gentleman in Grand Junction, Colorado, said, When I was younger, I thought the line was, Lead a snot into temptation. And he said, I always thought I was praying for my little sister to get in trouble. Lead a snot into temptation. Well, I know it's called the Lord's Prayer, but really it's not. It's the disciples' prayer. It's the prayer the Lord taught the disciples to pray. The Lord's Prayer is John 17. That's Jesus' own prayer. This is the disciples being taught to talk to their Father. Now, the same prayer is mentioned in Luke chapter 11. But get this. In Luke 11, we're told, The disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven, and gave them this prayer. I've always liked that. Lord, teach us to pray. Not, Lord, teach us to preach. Lord, teach us to prophesy. Lord, teach us how to raise our families. Lord, teach us how to manage our finances. But it was, teach us to pray. Why is that? They'd been watching Jesus. They knew that prayer was the secret. It was the foundation of his life, that everything he did flowed from the relationship he had with his Father. And they knew by looking at his life, if I could learn to communicate that way with our Heavenly Father, everything else in my life would be taken care of. Something to uh, look at in this prayer And you'll notice just by looking at it, there's no mention of a special place. Jesus doesn't say, now when you pray, you got to do it in church on Sunday or in the synagogue on Sabbath or facing Jerusalem or bowing towards Santa Fe. There's no mention of any special place. There's no mention of any special posture. You don't have to kneel. You don't have to fold your hands and close your eyes because it's all about the heart, isn't it? It's all about the heart. And we're told to pray on all occasions later on. Something else about this prayer. It's pretty short. 
It takes you 25 seconds if you read it out loud at about this pace. 25 seconds, only 66 words. Now, that should be a little bit freeing to some of us who believe, I'm just not good enough when I pray. I I need to pray longer, and perhaps you do. But I don't know a Christian, I've never met a Christian who doesn't think that he or she should pray better or longer than they pray. And on one hand, that's a good thing. On the other hand, however, I look at this prayer, and it's very short, but it covers all of the bases. In fact, Jesus himself said, when you pray, don't fill your speech with repetitive phrases like the pagans do who think that they'll be heard for their much praying. We've fallen into a trap, I fear, that says the strength of prayer is directly proportional to the length of prayer. Remember when Peter prayed on the Sea of Galilee? He was drowning. You want want to know what his long prayer was? Lord, help! He didn't even say amen. But it worked. It was fervent. It was from his heart. And that's not to say that Jesus didn't sometimes spend all night in prayer to God. He didn't do that, however, every night. So we have flexibility, and this just frees us up, that it's more than length equals strength. Well, let's look at the prayer itself. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. One of the frustrations I have in teaching this prayer is I can't do 16 weeks of it. I have to cover it all in one short little message, just reminding us of some principles before we, on this Father's Day, take the Lord's Supper. But I want you to notice quickly six things this prayer is concerned with. First of all, it concerns God's person. Notice what he's called, Father. When you pray, say, Our Father. Now, that is an intimate term. That is a family-like approach. And you've got to know that that was revolutionary to the ancient peoples. To refer to God as their Father was unheard of. The Greeks certainly did not call any of their gods their Father because they believed that the Greek gods were hostile and jealous and vindictive and people lived in fear of their gods. There's a story of one god named Prometheus who gave a gift of fire to people because he had compassion on them. The Greek gods never had compassion on people. Zeus, the chief god, found out that Prometheus had done this and he ordered Prometheus to be chained to a rock, an island in the middle of the Adriatic Sea and commanded vultures to pluck out his liver because he dared give something that kind to mankind. Well, who wants to call somebody like that father? Not only the Greeks, but if you went back to ancient Judaism, you discover that the ancient Jews weren't as familiar as this. They referred to God as Adonai, my master, or El Shaddai, 
the mighty one. They never pronounced the name of God. They never read the name Yahweh. They'd never said it. They would come to his name and bow their heads and simply say in Hebrew, Hashem, which means the name, the name. God, God's name was never pronounced. It's never written. Even to this day, you'll notice that very pious Jewish people will put G-D to exalt God. To honor God. But here Jesus said, when you talk, call him Father. By the way, when you come to the New Testament, you discover that difference pretty radically. Seven times only, I counted in the Old Testament, God is referred to as Father. Only seven times. And those seven times typically see God as the Father of creation, the sovereign Father controlling everything in the world. But you come to the New Testament, and suddenly Jesus... Jesus alone in the four Gospels refers to God as Father 156 times. And then three more times in Acts chapter 1. And then the disciples and the apostles, Paul, Peter, John, refer to God as Father even more times. Which begs the question, did God change from the old to the new? Answer, no, He didn't. We changed. You see, the New Testament promises us that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. And we're in the family. And now that we're in the family and not afar off, there's an intimacy. Paul will write in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, We have received the adoption as sons because you are sons. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Do you get the word Abba? Father. Now here in, in, in our text, it's in Greek, pater. Pater is the Greek for father. But Jesus would have taught that prayer either in Aramaic or in Hebrew. And in either language, the word is Abba, which means literally daddy, papa. Very, very familiar, very, very intimate. Hey, when you pray, Jesus said, Say, our daddy in heaven, our papa in heaven. The familiarity of a father and son or father and daughter relationship. Question, what is your relationship with God like? Intimate, close, or distant? Sometimes I hear people talk about the big man upstairs or the big guy upstairs. It's always a dead giveaway. They don't know God. Or they say, well, the good Lord. You know the good Lord. Really? Is He your good Lord? Or or is God aloof and distant and far off? But notice something. He's not just Father. He's Father in heaven. He's your heavenly Father. Now, i got to say this. Some of you grew up with relationships with your dads that were far from perfect. I heard about a guy witnessing in Australia... He was out on the street, and the Australian teenager said, Well, mate, tell me what God is like. And the man witnessing said, Well, God is like a dad. He's your father. And he didn't know that young man's past. That teenager said, If he's anything like my dad, I want nothing to do with him. However imperfect your earthly father is, know that your heavenly father in heaven is perfect. He's the only perfect dad. 
but he's your heavenly father. And this prayer concerns God's person. Second of all, it concerns God's preeminence. Preeminence. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Praise is given him because of who he is. That's how the prayer ends, by the way. Look at the last part of it. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's God's preeminence. So what does it mean when it says, hallowed be your name? We don't use that term anymore. It's not in our language. And it's probably not in our language because, frankly, it's not in our lives as much as it used to be. It means to be holy, separate. It means to bring reverence to God's name. And understand this, in the Bible, when it talks about God's name, it's not referring to his title. It doesn't just mean don't cuss with God's name in it. The idea of giving honor to one's name is reputation, character. Sometimes we say of a person, he's made quite a name for himself, hasn't he? Or she has a name around these parts, meaning the way they have lived has created a reputation that's attached with that name. If you're to walk by a car and you see the name Porsche stamped on it, there's a reputation with that name. And it's a different reputation from Toyota or Ford or Chevy. All of those have maybe good reputations, but that's sort of a class everybody knows that's set apart. Hallowed be thy name. So how about this? How about when we talk to our Father in heaven, we start thinking about if God, if God grants this request, what would that do for His reputation? Will this honor His character, His nature, His name? Hallowed be thy name or your name. Now something you've noticed so far in looking at this prayer even briefly. You notice that the first part of it is all about God. It's not till we get to the second part that we start mentioning ourselves. It's first, Father in heaven, hallowed or blessed or holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your what's all about God. One of our problems is when we talk to God, we want to skip this first part, get right to the second part. It's all about me. I got a need here. You know, it's like 1-800-DIAL-HEAVEN. Quick, I need you. And don't misunderstand me. God wants you and I to honestly pour out our needs before Him. But there's a balance in prayer. Just as there's a balance between Abba, Father, and hallowed be His name, there's a reverence there. So in bringing your request to God, you want to first begin by worshiping Him, exalting Him, praising Him. And then third, you'll notice that this prayer is concerned with God's purpose. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Here it is. Your kingdom come, your will be done. What does that mean? What does it mean today for you and I when we pray to say, your kingdom come, your will be done? Is that our prayer wanting Jesus to return to the earth and establish his kingdom? Well, perhaps in part. But understand something. Jesus is going to come back and establish his kingdom whether we pray for it or not. He said he's going to do it. 
Revelation chapter 11 declares there's coming a day when an angel will announce to the earth, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. So yeah, I guess you could say that we should be saying, Lord, come quickly, establish your kingdom on the earth. But I think it means more than that here. And I think the answer to what it means can be found a few verses later in verse 33. Would you notice that verse? Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now this refers to God's rule in my life. To say, your kingdom come, your will be done, is, Lord, begin with me. Set up your kingdom in my heart, in my life. You know there's a throne in your heart, so to speak. Who's sitting on it? Is God really the Lord? Is He calling the shots? Do you live for Him? You know, there's really only two kinds of people right now in this room. There's the people who are saying, Thy will be done. And then there's the people saying, My will be done. There's the first saying, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then there's the group saying, My will be done in heaven as I make it done on earth. There's people, it's all about them and all about their agenda. Hey, how did Jesus pray? Remember the Garden of Gethsemane when His own comfort was being assaulted and He was going to the cross? And he even prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's your Savior and my Savior, relinquishing his will to the will of the Father, that God's perfect will would be done in his life. So this prayer concerns God's purpose. C.S. Lewis used to say, If you aim at heaven, earth will be thrown in. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. You seek first the kingdom. But, he said, if you aim at the earth, you'll get neither. So this is a prayer saying, God, set up camp in my life. Be the king of me and in my world. Fourth, this is a prayer that concerns God's provision. Notice, give us this day our daily bread. You see, your Father does want you to bring your needs before Him. Does invite you to ask personally for provision. But doesn't this prayer seem a little out of place? Give us this day our daily bread. When is the last time, honestly, you prayed, God, please, I I just want my next meal. You see, in, in America... It doesn't seem like this even fits. You know, we're on diets. You know, we, we pray the opposite. Lord, Lord, keep me from being a pig at lunch and consuming mass quantities of this food. But give us this day our daily bread. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Bread was an ancient euphemism for your daily sustenance. What you need as a foundation in your life to maintain and sustain your needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, you know what I need today. In all the areas I'm going to face, provide for me. I trust you to do that, Father. And notice it's daily. Don't you like that? Jesus doesn't say, hey, when you pray, just say, "Um, give us this week our weekly bread. 
Or tell you what, Lord, just cut me a check for the whole month. Or tell you what, better yet, cover the whole year. Why daily? I think it's because God knows human nature. And if God said, just say, give us this month our monthly bread, we'd probably only come to God once a month. We'd only show up once a month. But God so loves our fellowship and he loves our dependence on him that every single day, just like the children of Israel who were out in the wilderness and that bread, their daily bread, the manna fell from heaven every day. And God said, go pick it up every day. And you can't gather two days or three days because if you try to gather more than one day, it'll rot. It'll go bad. Every day their daily bread was given. And daily bread means your needs. It's what you need. God promises to provide what you need. God doesn't promise to grant you your greeds, only your needs. So if you're out there praying, God, you know that I need that widescreen, that HD. Well, you can get it, but it's not like you need it. It's not like you won't survive without it. Like the little boy who was praying his nightly prayers, mom and dad were there at his bedside, and he was being so pious, so sweet. Oh, Father, in heaven, bless mommy and bless daddy and bless sister and bless brother Lord. And and dear God, please give me a bicycle, he shouted at the top of his lungs. And his mother corrected him and said, Son, God isn't deaf. You don't have to shout. He said, I know, Mom, but Grandma's in the next room and she's a little hard of hearing. (laughs) Smart little kid. So you're my father. I have a relationship with you. I glorify you. I honor you. And I want you to answer the requests that enlarge your reputation. And then this prayer. Give me what you know I need every day. There's a great proverb, Proverbs 30, that meshes with this quite beautifully. Solomon writes, Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, don't give me too much. Don't give me too little. Just give me what you know I need, and I'll be satisfied. The fifth thing to notice is that this prayer is concerned with God's pardon. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, this is not a handy way to pay your bills. This is not some easy cop-out where if you can't make a car payment, all you got to do is say, God, forgive us our debts. doesn't work that way. And that's not what it, would have, what it refers to. It's speaking of our debt toward God, our debt of sin. We sin, we fall short every single day. And here's the point. Jesus is saying, keep short accounts with your Father in heaven. You say, well, I don't need to do that. I don't need to ask God to forgive me every day. I'm already a Christian. I asked Him to forgive me four years ago when I received Christ. Well, true, He's forgiven you then, but that's sort of like saying, I don't need to brush my teeth. I did it once. Yuck. You keep doing it because you know what? Germs keep a coming. And 
John wrote to Christians when he said, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So keep short accounts with God. Every day when you wake up, every night, forgive us our debts. Now that's just the first part. Notice it's attached to the second. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Did you know that vertical forgiveness, God forgiving you, is inextricably intertwined with horizontal forgiveness, you forgiving people who have blown it against you? Here's how it works. God, through Christ, has forgiven you everything. You're a forgiven person. And the proof that you're a forgiven person is that you're a forgiving person. You find somebody who's very generous and forgiving. You can say, that person's been forgiven. He knows how to forgive. Brothers and sisters, how could we ever, having been forgiven everything by God so generously, how could we ever hold a grudge and decide, I'm not going to forgive that person. I'm going to simmer on it and steam on it. No, no, no. Feed him every time. How could we do that? How is that possible? You don't understand, Skip. They hurt me. They said nasty things. They did horrible things. That's exactly why they need to be forgiven. That's what Paul said, Ephesians 4.32. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. So forgive us our debts as we prove that we have been forgiven by forgiving others their debts. Sixth and finally, his prayer concerns God's protection. Lead us not into temptation. Why should we ever pray that? Because James, didn't he say, God can't be tempted? Neither does God tempt any person. So why would we ever need to pray for God not to do something that's contrary to his nature anyway? Well, understand when Jesus adds this portion of the prayer, he's not speaking technically. This isn't a theology class. He's expressing the heart of a Christian who faces temptation like anyone else. This is as if to say, Lord, don't ever let me be in a temptation that I can't resist. Lord, if I ever and when I do face allurements, please lead me through them to victory. That's the idea. Now, when you pray that, it doesn't mean you escape responsibility. It doesn't mean that you can walk into temptation and just shoot up a quick one. Lord, lead us not into temptation. It doesn't mean if you have an alcohol problem that you walk into a bar with your buddies praying, Lord, lead us not into temptation. No, because you have to take responsibility and flee temptation, the Bible says. Go the other direction. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament who was seduced by Potiphar's wife who grabbed Joseph and nobody was around and she said, come to bed with me. Remember what his response was? He didn't say, well, I'll just go inside and witness to her. (laughs) All the while praying, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, you know what he did? He ran in the opposite direction. So flee temptation and don't give the devil your forwarding address. Get out. Get out now. 
But pray daily, Lord, lead us not into temptation. So this is a balanced prayer. This prayer is to the point. This prayer covers all bases. And I would suggest this becomes the daily way you approach God. This is the way I pray every day. Using this as a grid, I approach God confidently as my Father because of the relationship through Christ. I give Him honor and glory, wanting His reputation to be honored, His will to be done in my life, asking for His kingdom to run my show, my life, my agenda. Asking Him for daily provision. Seeking His pardon, His forgiveness. Being willing to forgive anybody who sinned against me. And as we take communion in just a moment, we can thank God for the way He's treated us in Christ. Amen? And because of that, as we hold the elements of the bread, which signifies His broken body, and the juice, which symbolizes His shed blood for our sin, we think about all the others that we must say, I let it go. I forgive. Lord, You handle it. So I'm going to... I'm going to ask the communion board to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in heaven, the one who from heaven sees all and knows all, the one who loves us so deeply as his own children, we bless your name. We pray that your name would be magnified by our very lives. We pray, Lord, for your kingdom to come. We can't wait for Jesus to set up and establish His kingdom on earth, but until then, would you establish your kingdom in our very lives? Would your will be done above our own? Then, Lord, you know what we need today. We pray, Lord, that you would provide not too much, not too little, but just what we need and help us to be generous with what we have toward others. And, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for sins and thoughts and actions, even done already today. And Lord, we're mindful because we have been forgiven that we will be forgiving. And then Lord, strengthen us and provide, Lord, what we need as we face trials and temptation. Keep us from the clutches of the evil one. And in all of that, we will render you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.